Hey, my name is Sean, and I'm one of the pastors here at Willow. We're so grateful that you chose to join us this weekend. Whether you're one of our Willow locations, or maybe you're watching us online in your living room, on your treadmill, maybe even in your car, wherever you're at, we are just grateful that you chose to join us this weekend as we continue our Advent series that we are calling Great Expectations. You know, this week I was thinking a little bit about first impressions and and how often I make a future decision based on my initial impression. I, I do it when I show up to a restaurant for the first time. I'll take in the environment and a lot of times take in the prices on the menu and I'll make a determination whether I will ever come back again before I ever take a bite of the food. Uh, For any of us who's ever been on a first date and you think about the, the impression that we form in the first 10 to 15 minutes of that other person that many times the second date will be determined by what happens in the first few moments of the first date. I, I also feel that any time I pick up a new book Uh, For me, the first impression of the new book, that first chapter is critical. If you don't engage me right out of the gates, I will likely put it down and pick up something different to read. And I think about that as we lean into the text that we're going to be in today, Matthew chapter 1. Not only is chapter 1 the very first chapter of the book of Matthew, but Matthew is the first book in all the New Testament. That really, in a sense, there's been 400 years between the Old Testament writings and the New Testament writings. 400 years where we don't have uh, an authoritative word of God. And so here we go. Matthew's eyewitness account, his gospel of Jesus, right out of the gates, chapter 1. you got to expect he's going to deliver something really special. Something enthralling. Something that will really have a good first impression that will draw us in to want to not only continue to read his book, but be drawn into the entire story of Jesus as it plays out all throughout the New Testament. And so the first impression that Matthew gives us starts with a genealogy. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, it says this. It says, this is a record of the ancestry of Jesus, the Messiah, the the son of David, the, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of, of, of Perez and Zerah, and, uh, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Am- Amenadiah. Amenadiah, the father of uh, Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Uriah's wife, Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Yon, Yon, the father of Boring, Boring, the father of, would you really stop reading this? I can't take it anymore, right? It's so interesting to me that, that Matthew comes out of the gates with a genealogy. It's not exactly the way I would think would be the way to make the best first impression, at least to a 21st century reader. However, to a first century reader, it was likely the best way to make a first impression. You see, back back in the ancient uh, world, it was really important to know not only your family tree, your family history, uh, but your family tree was your connection to God's promise, but it was also something that helped you with social standing and even legal status in that particular culture. And so as Matthew is bringing forth this eyewitness account of everything that has to do with Jesus, as he was writing to a Jewish audience, it was very important for him to set up the ancestry of the person of Jesus. Because he was the Messiah. He was the one that was promised. He was supposed to be one who was to come from the lion of the tribe of Judah. 
He was the one that's supposed to be a descendant of King David. And so it was so important for Matthew to step with his readers, the ancestry that led to the person of Jesus. Now, I say that it doesn't make the best first impression for us 21st century readers, but there's been a more recent really intrigue and engage with, with different uh, websites. Websites like Ancestry.com that the people have really gotten into learning more about their own personal genealogies and their own family tree. And if your experience has been anything like my experience, as I've had those in my family who've explored our family tree, here's what we discover. It's a mix of highlights and also probably scandal. Uh, that within every family tree, there are things that we discover in our family history that we think, man, we're connected to some really key historical figures. There are some heroic moments, some awesome stories that we come to find out about those that are a part of our family. But in every family, we also have a cousin Eddie. We have those things and those people that we're not as proud of to be a part of our family tree. Uh, maybe there were some uh, there was some scandal of some kind. Maybe there was some mental illness that led to some very difficult situations in our family tree. That every family tree is mixed with heroic wins and scandalous losses. That's true in my family tree. It's likely true in your family tree. And it's certainly true in the family tree of Jesus. I mean, if you look at the names that, that Matthew shares with us, there's some powerful, powerful highlights and heroes. Heroes like King David, the greatest king that Israel had ever known. Figures like Josiah and others. Tremendous highlights. But but amidst all these incredible names, there are also other names who were wicked kings. Unfaithful people. I mean, generations that we would have rather skipped over if we're going to recount a genealogy. But, But Matthew includes both. The highlights and the heroes, as well as the scandals and the losses. But also very unique in Matthew's genealogy is the inclusion of five women. And I say it was unique because in the first century when these genealogies were formed, you would rarely, if ever, find the name of a woman listed in a genealogy. And so Matthew's inclusion of these five women's name had to have been done with such intentionality. So the question becomes, what's Matthew's point when it comes to the inclusion of these five women? I would would like to suggest for us that there are some common themes and common threads with these particular women that are very important for us to understand as we look at this chapter. Uh, The first woman we find is, her her name is Tamar. Her story is recorded for us in the book of Genesis chapter 38. Now, if you know Tamar's story, you know that she was the daughter-in-law of Judah. And there was an ancient law that was really important in the Old Testament that, that if your husband died... That it was the responsibility of the family, if not one of the siblings, one of the brothers, to marry that widow. Because it was very important to make sure that this widow, who was now vulnerable, would still have a connection to the family. And potentially would even have a son that would be able to continue on with the promise. Now Tamar, who was married to one of Judah's son, her husband did pass away. He was a wicked, very unfaithful, disobedient person. And the challenge was, so were his siblings. And so they did not fulfill the law that was required of them, leaving Tamar in a very, very vulnerable position. And so what did she do? She disguised herself as a prostitute, tricking Judah, her father-in-law, into being the one that would give her a son that would connect her to the family and to the promise. As you can see in Tamar's story, there's a sense of scandal. There's a sense of this really checkered past and story. 
But yet at the same time, the disobedience was not just in the deceit of Tamar. The disobedience started with Judah and his sons not fulfilling their God-given responsibility. And so Tamar, you could say, was very faithful in almost forcing the faithfulness of obedience to what God's plan was. And so her story is mixed with scandal. But her story is also one that has this thread of faithfulness that when it was connected to God's faithfulness, God redeemed the story and it was her child that became the continuation of the promise, the lineage that would lead to Jesus. The next woman we meet is a woman by the name of Rahab. Rahab didn't disguise herself to be a prostitute. Rahab was a prostitute. And she lived in the city of Jericho, who was the the city that the people of God would conquer once they went into the promised land. Uh, They they were the enemies of the people of God. And Rahab not only had some scandal in her story as a prostitute, but she was a part of a people who were the enemy of God. Yet Rahab, she housed the Israelites' spies. She took care of them. And it was because of her faithfulness that God spared her, grafted her into his own family. And it was her descendant that became the carrier of the promise, the lineage that would lead to Jesus. There was scandal in her story, but this thread of faithfulness that when coupled with God's faithfulness led to a redemptive story. The third woman you meet is a woman by the name of Ruth. Now, on surface level, there was no scandal in Ruth's story. Ruth's story is is one of tremendous loyalty, tremendous faithfulness. However, Ruth would have been considered an outsider. Ruth was not Jewish by birth. That was not her ethnicity. Instead, she was a Moabite. She would have been a foreigner. She would have been considered an outsider. In many ways, some would have considered her an enemy because of her ethnicity. Yet because of her faithfulness, her faithfulness connected to God's faithfulness led to a redemptive story that it was her descendant that became the carrier of the promise, the lineage that led to Jesus. Uh, The fourth woman is not named in Matthew's genealogy. Uh, She's referred to as Uriah's wife, which we know is Bathsheba. She was the one that had the adulterous relationship with King David, the greatest king that Israel had ever known. Now, what's interesting about this particular story, it is one of great scandal, not just because of the adultery, but because of the murder cover-up when David claimed the life of Uriah. It's a messy story, a very scandalous story. Yet in it all, scholars would suggest that the origin of the sin is more tied to David, that though it's called adultery, uh, she and her social position would have had no ability to resist the command of the king. It was likely not a consensual act. The sin was David's sin. Yet at the same time, in some way, she committed herself to be faithful to David. She ended up marrying David and had a faithful relationship with David. And it's because of her faithfulness compared and coupled with God's faithfulness that it was their son, Solomon, who became the carrier of the promise, the lineage that led to Jesus. Now, why would, why would Matthew include these four women? whose stories had some form of, or at least the perception of scandal, while at the same time, this thread of faithfulness. The reason that Matthew includes them is because he's setting up the fifth woman that he's going to introduce to the genealogy. The fifth woman is given to us in, I believe, verse 16. It says this, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, was the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who's also called the Messiah. Mary. Now, Mary was not one whose story was scandalous, but it certainly had the perception of scandal. 
young teenage girl having a child out of wedlock. And though we know the story today in the first century, who's going to believe the story that she was conceived in a divine way? Some sort of immaculate conception. And so it would have had the perception of scandal, yet Mary was so incredibly faithful. And it was because of her faithfulness, coupled with God's faithfulness, that God not only redeemed her story, it was actually through her life that God brought the ultimate Redeemer. Not just the Redeemer for her story, but the Redeemer for the entire world. Through Mary came the story of redemption into a family that has some heroic moments, but some great, great scandal. There was a Redeemer that was born that would redeem the story that no matter how checkered or how scandalous the past was, it was through Jesus that God would begin to write a new story. Matthew tips his cap to the purpose by which Jesus brought to the world. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, just a couple of verses later, here's what it says. She will give birth to a son. You will give him a name. His name is Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That was the purpose that Jesus was born into the world. That, that purpose was one that we call salvation. That purpose was also one that we call redemption. And so this Christmas, as we lean into the original Christmas story, I would encourage you to have great expectation. Not only just great expectation of what God did in that first Christmas, but also great expectation for what God can do in our life. That the same redemption story that came through Jesus is the same redemption story that you and I can experience. As I think about this word redemption, it was originally a term that was used to describe payment. that was made on the behalf of a slave or prisoner in order to set that prisoner free. You know, the once the person lived in bondage, but now has the opportunity to live in freedom. Redemption is despite my checkered past, that God has this amazing ability to write a brand new story. And so we can approach this Christmas with great expectation. Now, I think it serves us to recognize that I think there's a difference between what I would call the term salvation and the term redemption. Uh, salvation is the term that we use to describe as this incredible free gift that God gives to us in Jesus. That salvation came that very first Christmas. It is through Jesus that God forgives us of our sins, that blots out our past, that sets us you know, free from that. that. God gives us the gift of eternal life. And the truth is about salvation. The salvation is this free gift. It has nothing to do with who we are or what we do. Salvation is solely connected to who God is and what God has done on our behalf in Jesus. Redemption is also a work of God, but redemption requires our participation. That God gives us freedom, but if we want to live in that freedom, if we want to live into a new story, it's our faithfulness coupled with God's faithfulness that can lead to a different story. We also need to recognize this about redemption is that that redemption always takes place from the inside out. In other words, when it came to the scandal, the checker past, all the crazy things within the family of Jesus, Jesus did not redeem his family from the outside. Jesus was born into the mess. He was born into the brokenness. He was born into the things that were messed up. And it's by entering into the story that he ultimately wrote a different story. The same is true with any kind of redemptive things in our own life. If we want God to redeem our marriage, the marriage won't be redeemed from the outside. Instead, the marriage will be redeemed when two people are willing to step into the brokenness and both exercise faithfulness, 
faithful obedience to one another, faithful obedience to God. And in that faithfulness, it's coupled with God's faithfulness. And it gives the opportunity for God to write a different story. It's true even if somebody wants redemption on the sports field. Just imagine your team just losing just a terrible game. You're like, I want redemption. How, how does a sports team experience redemption? It doesn't happen in a locker room. It doesn't happen in the stands of a stadium. It only happens when we really step back on the field, possibly run some different plays to lead to a completely different outcome. It's the only pathway for redemption. It happens from the inside. I even think about it in the year 2020. You know, I, I joke that, you know, for years I've heard the phrase, hindsight is 2020. Now we're all at a place that we can't wait to get 2020 into hindsight. But as I kind of think about that, you know, we, we want to kind of step out of 2020, but what if God wants to do something redemptive? And what if it requires us to step into the hard, or step into the difficult, step into the things that are so incredibly uncomfortable, but it's actually through that, if we prove ourselves faithful, connected to God's faithfulness, that God can use it to write a different story. This Christmas, as we remember all that God did when he brought Jesus to this world, there is great expectation in the redemption that came through Jesus, not just that first Christmas, but even a new story, a new redemptive story that God wants to write in our lives today. So if you want to lean into the story of redemption, here's the first principle that we need to take hold of. The first is this. We need to be people who learn to break the grip of the past, truly trusting God to break the, the grip of the past. You know, for each of these women that we mentioned in Matthew's genealogy, uh, they, they had this checkered past, but their checkered past was not their defining moment of their story. Instead, God saw their faithfulness, and God redeemed their story, so much so that they became a part of the, the lineage that led to the ultimate Redeemer. And so here's what I found to be so incredibly true, that as people, if you do not have a vision for the future, you will likely just return to your past. Let me say it this way. If you don't have God's vision for the future, you'll likely just return to your past because it's just what we've always known. And it actually reminds me of a, of a sign that I saw not that long ago warning us about a particular natural disaster. Now, I've always lived, or at least for most of my life, I've lived in the Midwest and so when it comes to natural disasters, I'm more concerned about tornadoes and blizzards than anything else. Uh, but if you go to different parts of the world, you'll figure out different ways that nature tries to kill us. But, but on the west coast or east coast, if you find yourself near an ocean, sometimes you'll see signs that describe what's called a rip current. And, and though I've never lived on the ocean, my understanding of, of rip current is, is as waves come in, there's this undercurrent, there's this undertow. Again, it's called a rip current that can move quite rapidly. Uh, it can move somebody uh, uh, as much as eight feet per second. So, and as long as it's taken me to describe a rip current, you're already 100 feet out to sea. Three seconds later, you're, you're 125 feet out of sea. And the challenge with rip currents is they claim more lives in the ocean than shark attacks, jellyfish attacks, and hurricanes combined. They're incredibly deadly. Because what people do is they try to just swim against the current, and it's impossible to do so. And so they end up wearing themselves out to the place that they, they can't do it anymore, and, and, and the, the natural disaster literally claims their life. And so there's these signs that get posted that talk about how do you break the grip of the rip? How, how do you get out of the current? You'll never, you'll never defeat it by trying to swim against it. Instead, you've got to swim out of it. Instead, you've got you to swim a, a completely different direction. And if you can get out of the current, 
then you can swim yourself back to shore. The reason I share this illustration is oftentimes there is this rip current effect when it comes to our past. Whatever the the, the checkered uh, reality is of our past, if we're not careful, it can be this rip current that we can't even begin to swim against. It is too strong of a current. Instead, we got to learn to swim a different direction. Instead, this is the piece where our faithfulness gets connected to God's faithfulness. And that faithfulness can look in, in a lot of different directions. And, you know, maybe it looks like that we, we surround ourselves with more grace-filled friends that influence, and influence us in different ways. Maybe it's learning to surrender one day at a time. Maybe it's refusing to idealize the past. Maybe it's when we enter back into the brokenness of our own story that we recognize that Jesus showed us a different way, that there's a different path. We don't have to swim against the current. We got to learn to swim a completely different direction and in our faithfulness, connected to God's faithfulness, God can write a brand new story. And so we got to be people who learn to break the grip of the past. We, we also have to be people who learn to truly experience the freedom in God's grace. Like experience the freedom in God's grace. Here's the truth. Your checkered past does not disqualify you from God's future purposes. We learn that all through the genealogy of Jesus. That your checkered past, it doesn't disqualify you from what God desires to do in and through your life. Uh, God did not send his son to put us in a neutral standing with himself. Instead, his redemption is all about us living in his favor. You see, when I think about those two terms of salvation and redemption, salvation, again, it cancels the penalty of sin. It, it, it grants us forgiveness. It, it means that the things that God could hold against us, God no longer holds against us. But it, at the very best, it puts us in neutral standing with God. But God's grace, God's redemption is about us existing in and living in his favor. This, this undeserved favor and merit. One of my favorite passages of scripture about this is from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul writes these words. He said, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. That's salvation. Taking care of the the past, putting us at least in neutral standing with God. But look what it says next. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. This undeserved favor, this, this disproportionate favor, allowing us to experience the best that God has for us. It reminds me of a game that I, that I love to play with my kids. We, we love to play Monopoly together. We're a little competitive. Sometimes the game ends by somebody flipping all the pieces of the board over, but, but oftentimes we get to play the game whole, the whole way through, and we love it. Now, for those of you who played the game, you know that, that there are some important spaces on the board, and, and aside from all the properties and all the houses and the hotels and those types of things, there are two spaces that can be pretty game-changing. One is the space that tells you to go to jail and go directly to jail. The other space is the space that's called free parking. Now, some people play the game where free parking is just a free space. Nothing bad happens. But if you play the game like we play the game, we put a lot of money in the middle of the board. And if you land free parking, you get this disproportionate favor all of a sudden to give you an unfair advantage in the game. And I think in many ways, as I think about these two terms, salvation that came through Jesus, it's almost like the the get out of jail free card. There's a sense of freedom that we get to experience in Jesus. But ultimately, it's it's this redemption that God wants to do in our lives. It's this free parking, in a sense, it's this disproportionate favor that he gives us to allow us to live a brand new story. When our faithfulness gets connected to God's faithfulness, God can write a brand new story. Grace is not just the absence of God's judgment. 
It's the presence of God's favor. Grace is, is, is not just a, a new place to live in. It's the fuel that we begin to run on. And so this Christmas, as we have great expectation for what God did through, for us through Jesus, as we begin to lean into God that he might write his redemptive story in our story, we've got to be people who learn to trust him to break the grip of our past. We've got to be people who learn to fully experience God's grace. Here's what I'd love for us to do. Uh, if you're able to, I would just ask wherever you are at, if you just simply close your eyes, I, w- I would love to speak some words over you. And when I think about these words, they're not my own words. I found them years ago, and I don't know their origin, but they're such powerful words about God's redemption. So if you would, simply close your eyes and allow me to speak these words over you. Here's the story of redemption. That when I fall, he lifts me up. When I am weak, he is strong. When I am lost, he is the way. When I stumble, he steadies me. When I am hurt, he heals me. When I am broken, he mends me. When I am blind, he leads me. When I am hungry, he feeds me. When I face trials, he is with me. When I face persecution, he shields me. When I face problems, he comforts me. And when I face loss, he provides for me. And when I face death, he carries me home. He is everything for everybody, everywhere, every time, in every way. He is God. He is faithful. He is first and last. He's the beginning and the end. He's the keeper of all creation. He's the creator of all. He's the architect of the universe. He's the manager of all times. He always was, always is, and always will be unmoved, unchanged, undefeated, and never undone. He was pierced and eased my pain. He he was persecuted, but yet he brought me freedom. He was dead and and he brought me life. He is risen and he brings power. He he reigns and brings peace. The world can't understand him. The armies can't defeat him. The schools can't explain him. And the leaders can't ignore him. He is light, love, longevity, and Lord. He is goodness, kindness, gentleness, and God. He is holy, righteous, mighty, powerful, and pure. His ways are always right. His world is eternal. He will be unchanging. His mind is on me. He is my redeemer. He is my savior. He is my guide. He is my peace. He is my comfort, my friends. He is my, he is your redeemer. He's my redemption. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you today, this Christmas season, this Advent season, with great expectation because of the one that you brought into the world that very first Christmas. Father, it was through his life that you brought salvation, but it was through his life that you began to write a different story. Father, I'm grateful from Matthew's genealogy and the list of names because, God, I can relate that in my own story, in my own family tree, God, there's a lot of brokenness. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of hurt. There's even some scandal. And so, Father, even in my own journey, I recognize and we all recognize our need for a Redeemer, our need for your redemption. So, Father, this Christmas, may we prove ourselves faithful and coupled with your faithfulness, God, would you use, we use the power that's connected to the name of Jesus to continue to write a new story with our journey. May we experience your redemption. We pray that in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.